A young school teacher is charged with executing her lover's wife so she can have him all to herself. The police say she's an obsessed stalker. She says she's a patsy who got set up by her man. Now join us as we recap the real life Fatal Attraction Murder. It's 1987, and Fatal Attraction, starring Michael Douglas and Glenn Close, is the number one movie in America. It's a simple plot. A cheating husband gets involved with a woman while his family is away for the weekend. He wants to break things off, but she's fallen in love, and violence ensues. There's a reason it's called Fatal Attraction. So two years later, in January of 1989, the real-life fatal attraction plays out in the small town of Greenberg, New York. So Manhattan is only 45 minutes away, but instead of busy streets and tall buildings, Greenberg is full of lush trees and cozy condos. It's cute and quiet. It is not the kind of place where someone gets shot nine times in their own home. So January 15th, 1989 is bowling night. Shortly before midnight, 40-year-old Paul Solomon opens the door to his Greenberg condo to find his wife, Betty Jeannie, dead on the living room floor. She's fully clothed, there are no signs of a break-in, and nothing is missing. Whoever did this knew Betty Jeannie and wanted her dead. She has bruises on the side of her head from a beating with the pistol. Her back and legs are covered in nine bullet holes. Five took her down, the four in her back were just for fun. All eyes focus on Paul, but his alibi is rock solid. His friends vouch for him, saying he spent the night at the bowling alley. None of them mention the other woman. As police tail Paul, they notice a much younger woman following him everywhere he goes. Her name is Carolyn Warmus. Now, Carolyn grew up rich and privileged in a fancy suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan. Her father made his money with the American Way Life Insurance Company. By 1989, the company was worth $150 million. Her family owned eight jets, two yachts, 15 cars, but... You know what they say, money can't buy love. And Carolyn's parents divorced when she was eight. Her mother won custody of the three kids. And meanwhile, her father married his secretary and started a new family. Can you say daddy drama? Her high school friends say Carolyn was overeager around boys. They say she used her money to get friends and she allegedly paid one girl a hundred bucks to set her up on a date. Carolyn had what New York Magazine called a unique approach to romance. But overall, everybody said that she seemed like a nice, normal, rich girl. Kind of quiet, definitely not the type to boil anyone's pet rabbit on the stove. Like Fatal Attraction. And then in 1983, they stopped saying that. Because that was her sophomore year at the University of Michigan. The year she started to get real Fatal Attraction-y. It started with a teaching assistant named Paul Laban. The two dated for several months. Paul figured, we're just having fun. Caroline thought that they were on the road to matrimony. She was head over heels. You could say obsessed with him. At least that's what her friend said. What Paul did, what Paul thought, this man was her whole world. And then it came crashing down. Paul broke things off to date another one of his students. They got engaged pretty quickly, which did not sit well with Caroline. She was still in love. So she stalked Paul around campus, calling him day in and day out. It got so bad that Paul and his new fiance had to move to a different town. But Carolyn got their address and the stalking continued. In April of 84, the police had to drag her out after she broke into their apartment. In May, she left a note on his car saying she was pregnant, begging him to call. After a trip to Florida, his fiance got a note from her too. I really hope you enjoyed this past week of not being bothered by me because now that I'm back from vacation, you can start worrying all over again. 
Two weeks before their wedding, Paul and his fiance filed a temporary restraining order against Carolyn. They were rightfully worried that she was going to ruin their ceremony. But even the restraining order wasn't enough to turn her off. She convinced Paul was doing this to her because she was Catholic and he was Jewish. So she converted to Judaism to win him over. It went about as well as you'd expect. Eventually, Carolyn gave up on Paul and she moved from Michigan to New York City. She was studying for her master's degree in elementary education when she met a married bartender. Damn, girl, there are some single men out there. They dated briefly, but the bartender broke things off. Now, Caroline knew this song and dance. This time, though, she took it up a notch. She hired a private investigator named Vincent Parco to follow the bartender and get some compromising pictures of him. It's hard to understand where her head was in this like blackmail him into getting back together, drive his wife away, who knows. But whatever she had in mind, it didn't work because his affair with Carolyn seemed to be the only thing that he had done wrong. The bartender was squeaky clean. So Vincent, the private eye, taught a course to aspiring dicks called How to Get Anything on Anybody. So when Carolyn suggested that they fake some naughty pictures, Vincent was up for it. He sent one of his investigators, Jim Russo, over to Carolyn's to take some lewd photos of her. So as Jim tells it, Carolyn was dressed in these lacy, see-through lingerie things when he got to her apartment. And she asked if he's excited to see her. And when he says no, she knees him in the groin. So Carolyn and Vincent stayed close after the bartender incident. He even made her a junior investigator at his firm. Meanwhile, Jim and another detective started their own PI firm, focusing on unsolved murders and missing persons cases. At this point, it's 1987, and 25-year-old Carolyn gets a job teaching at Greenville Elementary School in Scarsdale, New York. That's where she meets and falls for another teacher, 40-year-old Paul Solomon. And he seems to like her right back setting off a chain of events with devastating consequences. So fast forward to 1988. Carolyn begins stopping by Jim Russo's new PI agency. She's got these wild stories about a short, brown-haired woman setting fire to one of her father's planes. And then the mystery woman allegedly hit Carolyn's sister with her car and fled into the the night. Carolyn wants Jim to investigate this lady, but he's not going to budge without evidence. She keeps talking about how she needs protection. She even begs him for a gun, but he won't give her one. So Caroline's like, fine, I admit defeat. I'm, she turns to leave, but before she walks out the door, she looks at Jim and she says, I know who the woman is. I've seen her where I teach. Her name is Betty Jeannie. Paul Solomon and Betty Jeannie have been married for 17 years. She's a beloved community member, the kind of person who is always there for friends in trouble. But sadly, Betty and Paul don't have the best relationship. They met in college and their friend said Betty Jeannie was a sweetheart. Paul, not so much. He's kind of a jerk. He's short-tempered. He's rude. He's always trying to like make himself seem important. You know the type. Well, the friends remember Paul as competitive, confrontational. He didn't let Betty hang out with friends he didn't like. Like, real husband of the year material. In fact, most people were surprised when Paul and Betty tied the knot in 1970. Not long after that, they had a daughter named Kristen, and they settled down into their suburban lives, Paul teaching fifth grade, Betty working a desk at a collection agency. And then Paul started a secret affair with his much younger co-worker, Carolyn Warmus, and nothing was ever the same. Paul promised that he was going to leave Betty Jeannie just as soon as their 15-year-old daughter graduated high school. But Carolyn, 
wasn't known for her patience. She started campaigning to be the new Mrs. Solomon, wife and mother. She wiggled her way into the Solomon family with invitations to dinner for Betty and Paul, expensive gifts and skiing trips for Kristen. Well, everyone except Betty saw the writing on the wall. She might have known that Paul was cheating on her. She just never suspected 25-year-old Carolyn. It was almost too obvious. So a few days before Betty's murder, Carolyn returned to her buddy Vincent Parco and she asked for a gun. She said she wanted it for protection. And she lived on Manhattan's Upper East Side, which is a pretty nice neighborhood, but you can never be too safe. So Vincent sold her this palm-sized Beretta with a silencer. On the day of, a call was made to Ray's gun shop asking about 25 caliber bullets. The call came from Carolyn's number. On Sunday, January 15th, four hours before Betty is killed, Carolyn calls the Solomon house to speak with Paul. For 45 minutes, they're on the phone talking about things like Kristen's basketball games and when Carolyn can come and watch. They talk about a bar mitzvah Paul went to on Saturday and the fact that Kristen is away for the weekend. And most importantly, according to the New York Times, they talk about Carolyn's birthday. She just turned 25. She wants to know why haven't they gone out for it? So Paul says, okay, baby, you know what? You're right. Let me get some of that sweet Sweet loving tonight. I mean, probably. I'm paraphrasing. But Carolyn and Paul typically rendezvoused every Sunday after Paul goes bowling. So that night, they plan to meet at 7.30. Paul stops by the bowling alley in Brunswick first. From there, he drives to the Holiday Inn in Yonkers, New York, where he meets Carolyn at the treetop bar. As the story goes, the two of them eat burgers oysters. They have a few drinks. While Paul talks about unhappy Betty is about him going bowling every Sunday night. They leave the bar around 1030. From there, they have sex in Carolyn's car and then they part ways an hour later. Paul gets home around midnight. The lights are on, the TV is blaring, and Betty is face down in a pool of blood, killed sometime between 7 and 7.30 that night. Those at Betty's funeral remember Paul's strange behavior. He struggled to keep his composure. He seemed burdened by guilt. He kept saying, I really did love her. I really did love her. And it really does sound like Paul was feeling really guilty about his extracurricular activities. It didn't take him long to get over it. He breaks it off with Carolyn in favor of another young school teacher named Barbara Baller. Now, you're not going to believe this. Allegedly, Paul and Barbara have already been dating for months. In October 1988, three months before his wife was killed, Barbara allegedly hired a private detective to trail Betty. That's what the PI testified to. Paul denies it. He says he did not start dating Barbara until after his wife was gone. Well, if the PI is telling the truth, Barbara and Paul suspected that Betty had a boyfriend of her own and they wanted to get proof. Now, meanwhile, Paul was also dating Carolyn. Well... He picked the wrong woman to cheat on while he was cheating on, while he was cheating to be with her. You know what I mean. Carolyn's been scorned a time or two, so this this is not her first rodeo. She calls Paul constantly, and she tracks him and Barbara around town. She even follows the couple to Puerto Rico. The sight of Carolyn there scares them right back to New York, where Paul calls the police. That lands Carolyn on law enforcement radar. They're digging into her, leads them to Jim Russo. Now, remember him, the private detective? Well, Jim had an interesting story to tell. He told the Greenberg cops about Carolyn's stint with his former boss, Vincent Parco. He told them about that bartender thing, that person she wanted to frame, the risque photo shoot, the knee to the groin. But the most damning story involved her last words to him the summer before Betty was killed. I know who the woman is. I've seen her where I teach. Her name is Betty Jeannie. So when police approached Vincent, he admitted to selling Carolyn the pistol. He also agreed to testify against her to avoid gun-related charges. And Ray's gun shop reported that a blonde woman 
spot 25 caliber bullets the day of the murder. Her ID was traced back to one of Carolyn's former co-workers. The woman's driver's license had gone missing five months before the murder. Police searched Carolyn's house next. Inside, they found an unmailed letter addressed to Paul. In it, Carolyn wrote how she couldn't take the pressure anymore. She asked Paul to tell her how he killed Betty. She wanted to take the blame before taking her own life. Well, Carolyn was charged with second-degree murder on February 2nd, 1990, but she has maintained her innocence ever since. She claims that Paul killed Betty and has been framing her this whole time. To be sure, the evidence against Carolyn was circumstantial. Did she have motive? Yes. Did she have opportunity? Yes. But there wasn't anything physical tying her to the crime scene. There were three pieces of forensic evidence. A glove with traces of blood. It was found next to Betty's body. Semen found inside Betty. And blood found in Paul's tote bag. Now, the black glove. Both Paul and the detectives spotted it next to the body. It even showed up in some crime scene pictures. And then, strangely... It disappeared before it was entered into evidence. Though Carolyn's turbulent romantic history did not help her case, Paul was given total immunity to testify against Carolyn. And then there's the weapon that she bought from Vincent. The gun was never found. And it's hard to explain away the call that Carolyn made to a gun shop that day asking about the bullets. The same caliber found in Betty Jeannie hours later. As for the unmailed letter to Paul... Prosecutors say Carolyn attempted to frame him with it. Now, Carolyn's lawyer made a few good points of his own. Some bowling alley witnesses say Paul was only there for about 10 minutes. He would have had enough time, theoretically, to go home, shoot his wife, and then meet Carolyn for date night. Around 7.20 on January 15th, Betty allegedly called 911 after she'd been shot. An operator claims that a distressed woman called in, but the line suddenly dropped because she'd been shot. She told the police, but they couldn't pinpoint the caller's location because the wrong address was linked to the phone number. The operator also had a hard time understanding her. They couldn't tell if Betty was saying he or she was trying to kill her. And then they lost the 911 recording. So Karen Carolyn's first trial ended with a hung jury. Eight voted to convict, four thought she was innocent. And then, like a twist at the end of a Hollywood movie, Paul found the missing glove in a closet at his home. How did it get in the closet? Well, Carolyn's second trial began in 1992. The entire case basically hinged on this glove that had magically appeared out of thin air. Kristen took the stand to say, yes, it looked like a glove that she had seen Carolyn wear before. And they dug up a department store receipt for gloves that Carolyn had purchased almost two years before. But nobody could prove that this glove was the one that belonged to Carolyn, nor could they prove whose blood was on it. But it was enough. A jury found Carolyn guilty of murdering Betty Jeannie. She was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Before the guards led her away, a teary-eyed Carolyn said, I did not kill Betty Jeannie. If I'm guilty of anything, it was being foolish enough to believe the lies and promises that Paul Solomon made to me. After 27 years in jail, Carolyn walked out on parole in 2019. She still maintains her innocence to this day. In fact, she told the parole board, I sort of feel like he, Paul, took advantage of the situation when he sort of pursued me dated me and stuff. I didn't realize he was married initially, girl, but I'm so ashamed that I did not end the relationship once I found out that he was married. Mm. Then she said, I wish I could change all that. I didn't realize he was having other affairs. I found out at trial that he already had large life insurance policies in place and benefited financially from his wife's death. In May 2021, the Westchester County District Attorney agreed to test multiple crime scene items for DNA. Obviously, it's 
gotten a lot better in the years since, and now they can actually find out whose blood was on that glove. Maybe even if it was Carolyn's. But as of 2023, we still don't know whatever became of those DNA tests. So where is Carolyn Warmus now? Well, in 2022, she appeared on Oxygen's The Fatal Attraction Murder to tell her side of things, what you just heard. And in prison, she was diagnosed with a massive brain tumor that paralyzed part of her face. She's been in and out of surgery for that, but as of 2023, she's still alive and still in New York. As for the other people in this story, Vincent Parco went on to star in Parco P.I., a reality show about his private eye business that aired on court TV for two seasons. In 2019, he was convicted for secretly recording a threesome and then using the sex tape to blackmail a witness against testifying against his client, who also happened to be a sex predator. So not great. These days, he runs his own business, Vinnie Parco Consulting. Paul Solomon kept a low profile after Carolyn was put away. He was in his 70s when she got out, but he had no public comment about it or her accusations that he is the real killer. So what do you think? Did Carolyn kill her lover's wife or did Paul frame his mistress for murder? What is the true ending to the real life fatal attraction murder? And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.